This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week we're doing something a little bit differently. Since we've made it through another full year, we're doing a best of 2016 episode. And there was a lot of really awesome stuff that happened in 2016. There was. And we bet there'll be even more awesome stuff happening in 2017. So, Happy New Year. Yes. But before we get into the best of, we just want to give a big thank you to some of our patrons, specifically Scotty, Jackson, and Megan. And if you want to join this amazing group of people or check out our other rewards, then visit our page at patreon.com slash inodino. Yeah, we made it through another year largely because of all the support from our Patreon supporters and It makes a big difference and it helps us keep the podcast going. So we really appreciate it. Yeah. And keep the messages coming. We really love reading all the emails and Facebook posts and Twitter and tweets (laughs) and everything else. Yep. Sometimes we're slow to respond, but we always read. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So our first best of pieces on those mummified bird wings, especially because there was such a big hubbub about the dinosaur tail, which definitely was the biggest story of the year, I think, at this point. But since that was just in the most recent episodes, we left that out in favor of the wings, where we talked about some of the other details about Myanmar, where these pieces of amber came from. There's a new paper by Lida Shing and others published in Nature and it describes two incredible new finds that were in amber. Specifically, they found two mummified baby dinosaur slash bird wings from about 99 million years ago, which is the mid-Cretaceous. So the specimens come from the Angbamo site in Myanmar, and so the amber that they're in is called Burmese amber, which fluoresces blue when bombarded with UV light, which is one of the techniques they used to make sure that it was a legitimate find and not some sort of forgery. They're actually not the first feathers that were found in amber, but they are the first dinosaur wings that we've ever seen preserved. And they're not complete wings, both of them start partway down the ulna and radius, but that still leaves a lot of the wing left in the amber because part of the wing is that their hand kind of gets bigger. So if you imagine your arm with like a bigger hand and then part way up your upper arm, that's still most of the wing. So it's pretty cool. The two samples are remarkably small though. Both of them are about one centimeter long and wide. 
which is like 0.4 inches. So they're super tiny. And even though they're so small, they have really awesome details. After inspection, they see that the wings have the same types of feathers as modern birds, which are rows of asymmetric flight feathers. And we hadn't really known for sure that they had those before. And in addition to the bones and the feathers, you can also see skin and muscle through the amber. And after doing a CT scan, they got a good view of the bones and they were able to compare them to other known species of dinosaurs from around that time period. So they are believed to be enantiornaths, which are a diverse group of small birds from the Cretaceous that mostly had claws at the end of their wings and teeth. And these wings did have little claws at the end too. And the entire group of enantiorns went extinct at the end of the Cretaceous along with most of the other dinosaurs. So this wing did not eventually evolve into a modern bird most likely, but its shared ancestor with modern birds obviously had already developed those asymmetric feathers that are needed for flight. Both of the specimens, when you look at them, basically look like they're black in the amber, but the amber is yellow. So you have to look at bits of the feather that are really close to the surface of the amber. And when the scientists did that, they said they're slightly different in color and that one is dark walnut brown and the other is black brown, which I guess is very slight difference. Slightly different. Yeah. But since they're almost 100 million years old, the original color is probably different and they have probably gone through some kind of decomposition. But unfortunately, they couldn't find a good exposed sample of the feather to look at under an SEM so they could check for melanosomes. And they didn't want to destroy the specimen by cutting it up and everything. They'd rather leave it in the amber. So we're not sure exactly what color it used to be. Luckily, though, they could see a little bit of patterning on the wing where there were some lighter patches on both of the wings, and they appear to show up in about the same places, so it's likely that they might be from the same species. Both of the specimens are being kept in the amber collection at the Dexu Institute of Paleontology in China. The craziest thing about this find, though, is that it was almost completely lost. Apparently, the valley where the amber was found is in the Kaichin state of Myanmar, but it's under control of the Kaichin Independence Army, which effectively prevents regulation of Burmese amber in the region. And most of that amber is sold to Chinese customers as jewelry. And one of the wings was nearly turned into a pendant that was going to be called Angel Wings. So hmm. that specimen is now unofficially nicknamed Angel. Luckily, Xing and his research team bought the fossil in an amber market in the capital of the Kaichin state before it was sold. It appears that Angel was broken off a larger piece, leading to the possibility that the whole wing or even oh. the entire bird may have originally been in amber before having the wing removed for jewelry. That's too bad. Yeah. There is an initiative for local universities to start checking amber for scientific value before they are damaged. But that hasn't happened yet, and it would need some pretty good support from the government. And it would probably need to resolve this whole who controls that valley in Myanmar and, you know, restoring order. But still an awesome discovery. It's really cool that they found these wings and that these birds 99 million years ago that didn't even descend into modern birds 
had such similar wings to modern birds. It's pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. Paleontologists in British Columbia have found tens of thousands of dinosaur tracks, which may be one of the largest amount of fossilized tracks found in North America. The tracks are from 100 million years ago, mostly of Allosaurus, and scientists found the site eight years ago but didn't have funding until now to excavate, and they were, I think, kind of hiding it until they got money. (laughs) And they hope that eventually it will become a tourist attraction and possibly work with other dinosaur attractions nearby to create a northern dinosaur trail. That would be cool. We did hear that there was very briefly a Canadian dinosaur trail, but they kind of shot for the moon and it fell apart. Yeah. But maybe this one will work out and you get a Canadian t-shirt. Yeah, that'd be cool. First in the news, we have an article that's all about how sauropods basically lived without having issues like getting a stroke from not getting enough blood to their head. And it's titled Neck Length and Mean Arterial Pressure in the Sauropod Dinosaurs. It was published in the Journal of Experimental Biology and written by S. Hughes and others. Like I said, the study's all about how you get blood up to your head when it's, you know, 20, 30, 40 feet above the ground with such a long neck. And in the abstract, they describe a few theories about how you could maybe get blood up to a sauropod head. One option is having an exceptionally large heart where you get huge blood pressure spikes and, you know, just big pump, get it up to the head. Another option is to have multiple normal, quote-unquote, probably still pretty big, sized hearts at intervals within the neck. So it's like a series of little pumps up the neck. Another option is just to not lift your head ever, which we've kind of been seeing some evidence of recently in other papers that weren't really worried about the blood supply, but were more worried about the muscle attachments and whether or not the dinosaurs could even mechanically raise their head like that. And then the last option is use the blood that's returning to the heart to help siphon blood up towards the head, which is a pretty interesting idea. And that's really what this paper focused on, even though it kind of sounds the strangest. But they believe that if you use a siphon in a sauropod with similar blood pressure to a giraffe, which is actually quite high, especially compared to something like a human, A sauropod could get its blood up to its head even if its neck was 12 meters or 39 feet long, which they say agrees with the longer necks in the fossil record. And I was checking around to see different sauropod neck lengths, and 39 feet turns out to be the exact length of the new titanosaur in the American Museum of Natural History. So it does match pretty well that if 39 feet is the maximum for siphoning blood, and they think that's a limiting factor, well, pretty much the biggest sauropod we've found has a neck that length. So, pretty cool. And a neurobiologist not associated with the study wrote a nice summary of their work for the Huffington Post, which is nice because we couldn't get to the full article. It's behind a paywall. And he explains that they used a few equations to estimate the height that siphoning could get blood up a neck, and then they set up an experiment Apparently, they set up a rig in a theater since it had a really high ceiling, which gave them the space they needed to mess around with sauropod dimensions. And they put red food coloring in water and then filled a pseudo-sauropod neck. The neck assembly was basically just a tube in a loop with a pump at the bottom set to a giraffe's blood pressure. 
and then they got the siphon working by making sure there weren't any bubbles in it, and they managed to get blood, in air quotes, to the head as long as they didn't raise the top end higher than about 8 meters or 26 feet, or they didn't raise the full apparatus higher than 12 meters or 39 feet. Sounds like fun. Yeah. (laughs) They recognized a few problems with the system, though. Siphoning actually puts a lot of pressure on the outside of the tube because siphoning is kind of drawing a vacuum on the way down. And this is a little bit different because it's a closed system where you're pressurizing one side and kind of depressurizing the other. But in any event, a typical blood vessel would collapse in this condition. And when they ran the experiment with a more flexible tube, it collapsed it and killed the siphon, so that wasn't working. They had to use a rigid tube. They did say that maybe in a sauropod neck, spinal and other body fluids would have helped limit that pressure rise. It might have kind of kept things a little more stable and prevented the blood vessels in the neck from collapsing, but they didn't actually show that with their experiment. The bigger problem that they ran into is that when they lifted the rig, like the entire thing, to see how high above ground it would work. The top of the neck nucleated some bubbles, which would have given the sauropod a stroke. Oh no. (laughs) Strokosaurus. Yeah. They actually said that it boiled at the top, but I, I think what they mean is it was more like getting the bends where the dissolved oxygen met a low pressure at the top from that siphoning effect and then the bubbles popped out. But in any event, you've got bubbles in the brain and that's going to cause a blockage and blood to not flow and then you've got you know, brain damage. And in their case, it was kind of funny, too, because they literally had this huge rig full of fake blood. And when they lifted it up, the pipe actually broke. And then it, quote, drenched the stage with puddles of fake dino blood. (laughs) No, you could attract a fake T-Rex that way. You could. I'm a little skeptical about these conclusions at all, since blood isn't just water. And it shear thins, which means if you apply force to it, it actually changes the viscosity of it, which seems like it could impact a siphon. And I couldn't find any real studies about siphoning blood. There were a couple theories about giraffes using the same technique, and they disproved it just by looking at the actual giraffe biology. There wasn't anybody that I could find that actually tried to siphon blood because, you know... You can just look at if animals do it. You don't actually have to set up a weird tube system with a pump to test it in modern animals. The other thing is I wonder about the impact of all the other branches that come off of this main pipeline to and from the head. Since they just had a simple loop, it's a lot different than the way blood actually is, where it disperses into muscle tissue and the brain and things like that before it comes back down. And I wonder if that would have an impact on the siphoning or if the siphoning would cause complications like maybe on the way back it would be pulling out too much blood or something i don't know but the research was really all just about the limits and they weren't looking to say all sauropods held their necks upright because we showed that it's possible they were really just looking to see if you could use siphoning as a tool to get blood to a sauropod's head and maybe You wouldn't need this enormous heart or a series of hearts or one of these other strange configurations in order to get blood up to the sauropod head. And they did show pretty effectively that siphoning might have helped lower the blood pressure without having a huge heart. 
The other thing that I kind of mentioned already is that there are other studies that show that a lot of sauropods probably had a more horizontal neck just based on the vertebrae and the muscle and tendon attachment points in the neck. So this is just kind of a piece of it. But it's definitely a really cool study. I love that they actually performed an experiment to validate their hypothesis. That's often incredibly difficult to do in paleontology, so it's cool that they came up with a method to test this. And I like that their limits do seem to line up a little bit with the paleontological record. I'll be interested to see if there are any responses to this paper, especially from scientists who may have done research on the giraffes or other animals and may know a little bit more about how blood circulates in animals. But we'll have to wait and see. Next, in Sydney, Australia, two parents have asked the Guinness World Records if their four-year-old son could have the title Youngest Dinosaur Educator. According to the parents, he's memorized more than 30 dinosaur species by looking at pictures, and he can pronounce all the names correctly. And he can also recite dinosaur traits, when they lived, and what they ate. He can't yet read, but he learned facts from watching Dinosaur Train and from prompt cards. And his parents are obviously very supportive. They said, quote, We wanted recognition that he is young and is doing an amazing job. Whether he wins it or not, for us, it doesn't really matter that much. We want him to continue to learn, and this is encouragement for him. We're so proud of him, and we're happy to see where he goes from here, end quote. So it's really great how supportive they are, and it's wonderful to hear about these dinosaur enthusiasts of all ages, even dinosaur enthusiasts who are too young to read. And this reminds me of my little cousin who's around the same age. His name is Jackson, and he can pronounce all dinosaur names correctly. And I know he teaches his grandparents all kinds of cool dinosaur facts because they've been emailing us some awesome things. <laughs> yep. So, hey, maybe if they turn a youngest dinosaur educator into a title, Jackson could go for it too. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That'd be a competition. Could be. There's a new calculator on Purdue's website called Impact Earth! Exclamation point. And you can use it to calculate the effect of a given comet, meteor, or other impactor on Earth. And you can either manually enter the diameter, density, impact angle, impact velocity, impact type, whether it hits sedimentary rock, crystalline rock, or water depth. You can do if it's hitting the ocean or a lake, I guess. Or you can grab a famous crater. So, of course, I took the Chicxulub impact. And the unique thing is that you can put in your distance from the impact and it will tell you the particular effects that you would see from the impact if you were standing that distance right when the impact happened. So luckily in our case, the Bay Area is about 2,200 miles from the Chicxulub crater impact site. And on the bright side, it says that our effects would be only a dusting of material about 25 minutes after the impact ranging from 50 microns to about 8 millimeters in size, which isn't too big, it's smaller than hail, so, you know, you could survive that. And the fireball stays below the horizon, so we don't get cooked. Oh, that's nice. a very big plus. There is a 10.3 earthquake, which, as you may know, is bigger than any earthquake that's ever happened in recorded history, not including geologic history, I guess. <laughs> And it might only affect us as if it was a four to five happening around here, which in California really isn't too bad. Of course, it could trigger an earthquake on one of the many faults in California, which might not be as small of an earthquake, but that's kind of like in the middle ground. On the downside, 
there would be an air blast about four hours after the impact that would hit at 80 miles an hour and 84 decibels. And since it's such a quick pulse and blast of air, it would probably shatter all of the glass windows pretty much on the continent. So that's not great. It's interesting that you were so optimistic about this. Like, yeah, there's a dusting of material, but imagine breathing that in and, oh, it's only a 4 or 5.0 earthquake. Oh, wait, but that might trigger other earthquakes. (laughs) It might, but it could be a lot worse. So, for instance, in Havana, Cuba, which is about 500 miles away, and partly the reason I picked that is if you put any city that's within 100 miles, it says, well, you're just within the impact, so you would be thrown away from it. And it's also a similar distance to Tampa, Florida. That's like 600 miles or Corpus Christi, Texas. Anyway, in Havana, Cuba, you'd basically burst into flames immediately about 11 seconds after the impact because there would be a 50 minute long fireball that appeared right at the impact site. And from Havana, it would be about 50 times larger than the sun in appearance and have radiation more than 200 times the sun, which is why everything burst into flames. And then after the radiation starts cooking you, you'd get showered in five-foot rocks at the seven-minute mark. And then at the 40-minute mark, a 1,200-mile-an-hour wind at 115 decibels would basically flatten every building in the city that hadn't already burned down and collapsed. And then, finally, at the seven-hour mark, in case there's anything that's still around, a 30- to 60-foot tsunami would roll in and probably just wash away the burned wreckage. That is much worse. Yeah. (laughs) So if you want to check how a huge impact would affect you and how far away it is, I played with a bunch of other things too. It's like, what if Chicxulub was made entirely out of iron rather than this more, you know, porous rock that isn't as bad? You can check the link in this week's blog post and put your distance from the impact site. If you don't know your distance, you can go to Google Maps and you can right-click just off the shore of Merida, Mexico, and use the measure distance tool. That's what I did to figure out how far we were. And one last interesting note, it mentions that the Chicxulub impact, depending on the impact angle, because you can't quite tell exactly from the crater, it may have either shortened or lengthened the Earth day by up to 8 milliseconds, but the orbit and tilt weren't affected. So, that's good. (laughs) I guess. Next, according to Engadget, Google has worked with 50 natural history museums to add 150 interactive stories, 300,000 photos, and 30 virtual tours to its art and culture app. And this includes Berlin's Museum für Naturkunde, where you can see the giraffe titan in 360 degrees. And you can use the app on a computer or smartphone, or better yet, Google Cardboard if you have it. And I watched the video on YouTube just on my computer, and it's fairly interactive in that you can move the image around so you see different parts of the museum, and it's really well done. It's really great. The Giraffe Titan comes to life and walks around, and even though I was just watching this on a laptop, it still felt like... It was bending over and kind of looking at me a little bit intimidating. I can only imagine what that would feel like in VR. (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. We're going to have to watch some of these things, Mm -hmm. especially because there are so many museums we want to go to, but sometimes it's not always practical to fly several thousand miles to go to a museum. (laughs) Yeah. 
Next, it turns out that the Dinosaur Stampede National Monument in Queensland, Australia, which was established in 2004 at the Lark Quarry, actually had no stampede. And there are probably a lot of tracks there because the dinosaurs were swimming, according to National Geographic. Anthony Romilio and Stephen Salisbury said that the three-toed tracks of what was thought to be a large theropod, which the original theory was that this theropod was scaring and chasing a bunch of dinosaurs, and that's why there were tracks there. But it may actually be from an herbivore similar to the Iguanodont mutaburosaurus. Not everybody agrees, though, including Richard Tholborn, who, with Mary Wade, studied the Lark Quarry in the 1970s and 80s and helped establish it as a national monument. And he said that their conclusions were based on, quote, fabricated data. Still, Romilio and his team think that there was a fast-moving river that dinosaurs had to ford, and this is based on sediments that show water moving at different depths and speeds. Both big and small dinosaurs crossed that area, and they ranged in size between 5 inches and 5 feet tall at the hip. Huh. It's interesting that they think they can tell how tall the dinosaurs were based on the footprint. Yeah, that's true. Either way, though, it's still really cool. I was a little bit worried with the statement that it's not actually a dinosaur stampede, that it was going to be some other kind of animal or that it was fabricated or something. But if it's dinosaur swimming, that's almost cooler. Yeah. So either way, it's definitely worth being a national monument. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. <laughs> mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Next, 
Princess Aliya Sultana Babi from India has been nicknamed the Dinosaur Princess, according to <laughs> Hindustan Times. And I think that's a great nickname. It is. I want to be the Dinosaur Princess. <laughs> or Prince, I guess, might be more fitting. <laughs> so she has a fossilized Titanosaurus egg from the late Cretaceous that she got from a villager who used it to grind spices. The, the villager didn't know what she had. <laughs> It's just like a natural mortar and pestle situation. You find a fossilized egg. You're yeah. like, what a handy stone bowl I have here. using that egg to grind up a pickled dinosaur brain? Then you could have a, a real special meal there. I guess so. Anyway. <laughs> so this villager lives in an area called India's Jurassic Park. And the dinosaur princess, Bobby, calls it her masala spice egg and she keeps it wrapped in white silk in a red velvet jewelry box in the 1980s researchers found a bunch of dinosaur fossils on her family estate including the carnivore rajasaurus and now that area is balasanor dinosaur fossil park and it has fiberglass dinosaur models though unfortunately apparently it's been a little bit neglected or it looks a little neglected there's a nearly complete museum nearby though so hopefully it gets completed soon and Bobby has a big interest in dinosaurs, so she's been working really hard to get more tourists to visit. That's very interesting. Maybe she should take that egg out of her jewelry box and put it on display if she wants people to visit. Maybe, but it sounds like there's <laughs> other stuff there. That's true. There's a really well-preserved Cetacosaurus that has been on display at the Seckenberg Museum in Frankfurt, Germany, for about the last 12 years. And... When I say it's very well preserved, it's pretty remarkable. It has a nearly complete skeleton, including the skull, all four limbs, vertebrae, hips, ribs, and all that good stuff. And it has a very interesting row of bristle-like filaments that stick straight out of the top of the tail, like an upside-down broom, basically. But most interestingly, it has preserved skin, including scales, all the way from the head to the tail of the dinosaur. So it basically looks like there's a skeleton and then over the skeleton is draped a skin that got preserved right with it. And it's, it has the same shape as the bone. So it kind of like flattened over it. It's really interesting looking. So this find has been published on several times before, including a previous paper by Lingham and Pladowski in... Naturwissenschaften, I think is how you say it, indicating that, quote, skin pigment within a partially degraded bone indicates that Cetacosaurus was scavenged shortly after death, end quote. Which is kind of interesting. I guess some of its skin was mashed into the bone, like something was chewing on it. They also noted that the animal appeared to have countershading. And if you're not familiar with countershading, you can think of a shark or a fish are easy places to see it. And on a great white shark, even though they're called great white sharks, it's really only their belly that's white. And then their back is actually kind of a dark blue. And then around the edges, it kind of fades into a lighter blue. That's because if you're another fish and you're looking at a great white shark from below, the white blends in with the sky above and from above the dark blue blends in with the water below you, which is much darker. And then from the side is really where the countershading takes the most effect because the dark fades to light around the side. Since it's being lit directly from above, it makes the appearance of an even color around the whole animal 
and that makes it harder to see. So it's a kind of camouflage by counteracting the sunlight. So if it's moving, you just see it's harder to see what's there. But in a new paper by Jacob Winther and others published in Current Biology, they wanted to test just how much countershading this Cetacosaurus had. So they used an electron microscope to look for melanosome shapes. As we've mentioned before, the shape of a melanosome can tell you if a pigment is black or reddish brown. And since the skin was well preserved, there are some melanosomes in there and they could figure out the pattern of these melanosomes, which is pretty interesting. They also used laser simulated fluorescence to look for color patterns on the preserved skin and managed to come up with a pattern for pretty much the entire body. Separately, they took known information about the size and shape of a Cetacosaurus, and they got one modeled out of clay. Then they lit it in both direct light and diffuse light so they could see the exact pattern of lighting on the body. And like in my example of a shark, you'd know that the back is going to get lit more, so with countershading, you would make that darker, and then the underside, which isn't lit as well, you make a little lighter to make it more even. But if it's in diffuse lighting versus direct lighting, it gives you kind of a different pattern and a different a different fade along the sides. If it's direct, you'd have a little bit more of a stark contrast, and if it's diffuse light, then it fades a little more gradually on the sides. So when they had the model built and they took pictures of it in lighting separate from their other research where they were looking at the melanosomes and the patterns of color on the Cetacosaurus, they found that the diffuse lighting model matched really well with the Cetacosaurus's actual pigment pattern. The one place where it didn't really work was on the face where there's a dark stripe across it, and they hypothesized that that might be for, you know, sexual display or something like that, rather than just camouflage. This is especially neat because it's also pretty direct evidence that Cetacosaurus lived in a place with diffuse lighting. And where would you find diffuse lighting? Basically a forest is one place you might find it. And so you can hypothesize that, okay, Cetacosaurus probably lived in a forest and ate things that would be found in a forest and did other things that you would expect an animal to do in a forest rather than behaving ways you would expect in an open field or some other environment with more direct sunlight. The best part of the study, though, is that at the end, they built a replica to match their findings, and it looks really awesome. It's all over the internet, so you've probably already seen it, but if you haven't, go to our blog and click the link in the show notes because everybody needs to see it. Yeah, I think the way the Guardian article started out was like, it was like paparazzi around this replica, but it was all researchers who yeah. were really excited. Yeah, and there's an anecdote about how one of them reaches out to touch the bristly things sticking out of the tail. <laughs> and the other ones are like, okay, I guess I'm going to touch it now too. <laughs> but it looks really cool. It's really fun to look at. And they also comment in that article that you know, paleo artists now have a little bit more to work with because we know some of the patterns from other animals that have feathers as well as now this one with its skin pattern. So gives us a little more information. As far as I can tell, it's still on display at the Senckenberg Museum 
And if you want to find out where that is in Frankfurt, it's on our website in the Dinosaur Museum section. So you can find it if you're ever in or near Frankfurt. Yep, pretty exciting. So those were our favorite pieces from the entire year. We left out some of the new dinosaur discoveries because Sabrina is going to be finishing up her top 10 dinosaurs of 2016 book. So it'll have a lot of that in there as well. And we didn't want to make it too redundant. <laughs> Thanks again to everybody for all your support throughout the year, for listening and for telling friends and everything, helping us keep our podcast going. We really appreciate it. We do. And if you have any favorite dinosaur moments from 2016, please feel free to share with us. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Again, if you want to join our growing group of supporters, please visit our page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. We're looking forward to a great 2017. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.